Hi everyone, it's Trevor here from WN Movie Talk Podcast and I'm back today with another edition of the films that I own that I have not watched yet. I haven't done one of these for a long time, so over the last month or so I've been going through the pot of films. In case you didn't know what they are, it's films that I buy from charity shops in bulk actually and down our tip i took a load of things to the tip the other day and they were selling dvds in there 10 for a pound well i've done two loads of 20 so i've come away with 40 extra dvds from there so i buy them at a quicker rate than i can watch them and then i write the titles down cut them up put the names into a pot and every now and again i will pick them out so that's what i do on this episode this is just a little additional episode to accompany the wn movie talk podcast that i currently do with my brother so if you enjoy this then please do give us a like, uh, subscribe to us, follow us, rate us on whatever podcast platform you are listening to. Uh, please just give us a like now. It really helps to bump us up a bit, get us out to a wider audience. So why don't you do that now? That'll be great. Go and do it now and then come back to listen to these four episodes. So yeah, there's four movie titles in this episode. We'll go through them all and then at the end we'll come back and then I'll pick my film of the month out of those four. So yeah, I'll see you at the back end of this podcast to discuss the films that I own that I have not watched yet. Good evening. I got my pot over here. I've just opened it. Have a rummage. Right, I've got one title in my hand and it is Ronin. Okay, so that is De Niro, isn't it? I've got a feeling. And is it based on an old film, Seven Ronin or something like that? I don't know. So it's here somewhere. There, Ronin. Yes, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, who also played Leon, the uh, professional. It's uh, an MGM movie. Two disc set with explosive action extras. So I'm looking at the cover. It's De Niro and Jean Reno looking sort of serious and stern. There's a car on fire. There's two cars on fire. And there's a, a in front of a building. The cover says, In a world where loyalty is earned and betrayal is a way of life, a new and deadlier terrorist threat has emerged. The freelance killer. The Cold War may be over, but at the forefront of the new world is a group of covert mercenaries whose skills in surveillance, reconnaissance and attack are for sale to the highest bidder. Five of these operatives, known as Ronin, are assembled in Paris by a mysterious client for a dangerous mission. Steal a top secret briefcase. It's always a briefcase, isn't it? What seems to be a straightforward assignment soon becomes a deadly pursuit as other underworld organisations vie for the same prize. Betrayer becomes betrayed as the film reaches its shattering climax. Have they just ru ruined the twist? Uh, featuring some of the most exciting stomach-churning car chases ever committed to film, Ronlin is a tough, uncompromising thriller that will leave you breathless. So it's a John Frankenheimer film. Uh, I recognise the name. It's got quite a good cast. Stella Skarsgård, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price also make up the cast. Screenplay by J.D. Zeck and Richard Weiss. Directed by John Frankenheim, Frankenheimer. So, yeah, I seem to think that this is like a, a remake of like a Japanese film or something like that. I can't quite remember. 
but I seem to think I have that in my head for some reason. I will do a bit of researching while I watch it and I will get back to you after this short musical interlude with my thoughts. So, okay, that was Ronin 1998. As I said, it was directed by John Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. I've looked up what films he's done. I recognise a couple. Mancurian, Candidate, um, French Connection 2. Haven't seen either of them. Um, but this film, you know, some of the car chases in this film, very, very good, very well shot, very similar to the original French Connection. Those films are both a lot earlier than this. Um, but you can imagine that he's probably used the car chase in those films because French Connection, obviously, is known for its its amazing car chase. So I, it is a film I want to watch, French Connection too. I hear it is, you know, it does get good reviews. And um, Frankenheimer, yeah, definitely a good director for this film. Some good set pieces, some good action going. Um, the screenplay, I said, was by J.D. Zeich and Richard Weiss. Richard Weiss is actually a pseudonym for David Mamet, who's, you know, playwright. Um, didn't he write Glen Gary, Glen Ross? I think was one of his. But, yeah, it, it wasn't a bad film. It was a bit of a heist, heist, almost espionage sort of sleuth film where a gang is all thrown together to do this job. They're the Ronin. They're not, they don't call themselves the Ronin, but... It sort of refers to, you know, it's the there's a pre-credit sequence where it explains the samurai and the 47 Ronin. That's what I was trying to remember before I knew it. Was, I thought the 47 Ronin was a film and this was based on it. Um, but no, it's it's like a, a legendary story from Japan, quite one of their famous stories. And it pops up a couple of times in this. So it's sort of just... It's just a comparison. This is a modern, these are the modern day Ronin. They got no masters. They're sort of working for themselves. And as, you know, as a consequence of that, these, when they're in a gang together, you know, there's going to be sort of lots of skullduggery and um, backstabbing and what have you. Uh, what I like to do when I watch films like this is guess A, who's going to be the sort of uh, the turncoat, or not the turncoat, but the, the snake in the grass, which one in the team is sort of playing against the rest of them, and which character is going to die first. So cover your ears for this, because I jotted down that, like cover your ears now if you don't want a spoiler, Skarsgård, uh, Stella Skarsgård, was going to be the traitor, and the driver, I, can't, I don't know who the actor was, was going to be the first to die and I made that assumption because obviously the driver I didn't know who he was I never you know he wasn't a, an actor that I recognized so yeah I knew he was going to be the weakest link anyway uncover your ears now um so yeah the gang will get together there's some corny moments and it's like De Niro so he's good in this it was good to see him in a film such as this from this time because he did start to do some sort of shit films, didn't he? Around this time, wasn't that when he's doing films like Meet the Fockers and uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, for Christ's sake. De Niro done Rocky and Bullwinkle. Can you believe that? Um, but in this, he was quite good, but maybe a bit too good. He was the only one in the gang who had everything spot on. You know, he had ways of weeding out the sort of the weakest links of the gang. Um, you know, 
he was so cl- cool that there's certain things he does to test people and one of them was where he he makes a flask of coffee he's tipping a flask of coffee oh he spills it everywhere and uh Skarsgård comes over as he's spilling it and he he mops it up and then he knocks the cup off of the table just to test Skarsgård's reactions and he, he his reactions are amazing he pick, he grabs that cup before it lands on the ground and it's little scenes like that a bit a bit corny in this day and age, they don't date well. But yeah, De Niro, his character definitely takes charge. He picks holes in the schemes and he sort of identifies what could go wrong. So their first, their first job, he, he like he knows it's a setup, and they're heading into an ambush. And um, Sean Bean is obviously out of his depth in this gang and in these early scenes he's very like anxious and hesitant uh, but a bit cocky and arrogant he's got this bullshiness about him but it's just bravado because he is out of his depth like and when the when the first heist or the first meeting transaction rendezvous takes place and they have a bit of a car chase and then um yeah when it stops Sean Bean is I guess you'd say violently sick, but it is some pretty poor overacting on Sean Bean's behalf when he's vomiting. It is, I've never seen anyone vomit like that. He's like jolts, very, oh yeah, it's over the top. It's over the top. Um, there's another scene with De Niro where he's like, they see that the these people they're going to meet are all coming out of the hotel. And so far, they're just supposed to stay in the room and talk about the plan and it's all just drawn up on a map on the wall and De Niro's like, no, we need to see the the area. So they go down, him and the girl, Natasha McElholm, who, you know, alongside uh, David Price is the the Irish contingent of this plan. And she's the sort of, she's the one who's sort of running the show. But her and De Niro walk down arm in arm down to the hotel and they take a look. And De Niro's like, right, we'll pretend we're honeymooners or whatever. Hey, taking photos and he shows some bloke how to use the camera. And at the same time, he's taking photos of this this crew who are coming out. And then he sets up this trap for them to make them react. And then he's snapping photos as they're reacting to see who in this gang is holding the guns, who what they're doing, covering the cases and what have you. It's, it's all a bit corny. Um... But it's all right. It's quite, it's half decent. So yeah, the, the whole film, they're chasing this case and you're wondering as the film goes on, are you going to get to see what's in this case? It's never mentioned what's in this case. You're always trying to work out. No questions. We don't need to know what the case is. But there's a lot of skullduggery and backstabbing as it goes along. Yeah, you do sort of question who's going to be the, you know, what the story is, who is the bad guys, who's set this up, what role they all play in it, you know, who's... Who's having one over who? But you get, you know, Jean Reno and De Niro, they buddy up from the beginning and they, they, they become sort of thick as thieves and you know, I don't know, I was half expecting De Niro to turn out to be like something else at the end and I guess he did in a sense, but I don't know. Some Sometimes films like this, they just, I'm not 100% sure what's what or I'm not 100% invested, or do I care what's what, you know? Um, I don't know why, but this film reminded me of Sneakers, this film I haven't watched for a very long time, 
which I used to really love. And perhaps if I watched it again, it wouldn't be as good. But it's making me want to watch Sneakers on a not non-related subject. But so there's a lot of good performances in this. Jean Reno is he's the friendly one. You get that sense from the beginning that he's a good guy. Gregor Skarsgård is very cold from the outset. And there's one, there's one scene where he's sees these thugs or these two guys. He, he's watching them and he's watching them from the top window with a camera. And he zooms in his camera just, you know, like a photography camera. Didn't even have a long telephoto lens on it, but he zooms in from afar on these people. And uh, you see the shot, the POV shot, which is supposed to be from his camera. And all of a sudden, it's a completely different angle it's like a medium close-up doesn't even look like it's shot from far away but you can tell it's supposed to be the camera because it's got the little symbol and stuff and i hate that when they do that in films when they use footage from a camera but it doesn't look like it is from the same camera a bit ridiculous you can tell it's a camera right in front of them um i don't know it's pretty conventional in place you know in parts this film but the, the car chases as i said were good it's good performances through it was enjoyable, but it wasn't something that gripped me or hooked me too much. It's just not my type of film. It's not that it's not a bad film. I've seen a lot worse, seen a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Going back to De Niro being so sort of perfect at everything, you know, he's so well trained. You think, well, why isn't he just doing this on his own? Why is he even with this group? But then is he doing it on his own? That's the question, isn't it? But, you know, he gets shot at one point and they go to visit this old guy. And he's this old guy's got all the doctor's kit, but he's not a doctor. He's the one who's also painting the samurai, the 47 Ronin. And he sort of, again, reiterates the story of the 47 Ronin to make that connection to the title and to these characters, I guess. But, yeah, De Niro is talking them through the procedure of taking out this bullet and... I think, well, this guy's got all the doctor kit. Why is he, is he not a doctor then? Why has he got all the kit if he can't do this? They just happen to know someone who stores kit. I don't, I didn't quite get the connection for that character and why, but you know, they always go to see some sort of uh, like mentor uh, stroke oracle in the middle of these films, don't they? And there is throughout the film. It's like you sort of spy networks. They, there's people they can go and talk to and they joke a couple of times, oh, I know him from high school and what have you. But yeah, Jonathan Price as Seamus, a typical Irish name, which sort of made me snigger a bit, but he's he's hiding something as well. So there's all these mysteries surrounding all these people and you don't always find out exactly what their motivation is, why they're there or anything like that. But do you care? I don't know. It was all right. Anyway, I don't really have anything much else to say about that, but it's nice to be back watching some films that I haven't watched yet. So uh, that was Ronin. I wonder what I'll be watching next. Hey, up. I'm here again with another film that I own that I haven't watched yet. Here is the case. So, I'm opening it. All my titles in here. I'm going to have a rummage. Watch a film. It's that time of the year where I feel like sitting watching films. It's miserable weather outside. It's dark every evening. So, what have I got today? The Burbs. The Burbs. Right, I know which one this is. 
This is, uh, I might have seen it when I was younger, but I cannot really remember it at all. So it's a Tom Hanks film, uh, directed by Joe Dante, if I remember correctly. So looking down in comedies, in my comedy section, and here we are, The Burbs. So the case, the cover, it's The Burbs Uncut, actually. And the cover is Tom Hanks stood in his cul-de-sac looking sort of moody and stern in what seems to be a doctor's coat with a spatula and a hose in his hand, in his pyjamas. Um, so, let's read the back case. It says, Tom Hanks portrays suburbanite Ray Peterson, whose plans for a peaceful vacation are disturbed by a creepy new family on the block in this outrageous suspense comedy directed by Joe Dante. To the disappointment of his wife Carol, played by Carrie Fisher, uh, she, me and my brother were talking about Carrie Fisher in one of our podcasts and we couldn't really remember a lot of the stuff she'd done. And I said, after Star Wars, and we remembered Blues Brothers and When Harry Met Sally, and I think that was about it. But, yep, she plays the wife in this. Anyway, uh, Ray decides to spend a relaxing week at home and soon gets into trouble with his neighbours, a hefty busybody, Rick Dockerman, 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 a freaked-out ex-soldier, Bruce Dern, and a spacey teenager, Corey Feldman, as they observe the strange happenings next door at the Clopex Bazaar residence. When the neighbourhood grouch suddenly disappears, the men are convinced the ramshackle house hides some hideous clues. Armed with assault rifles, high-powered binoculars, and a shovel, they decide to see for themselves exactly what is going on in the Clopex place. Set in an average neighbourhood that is anything but average, the Burbs blend slapstick comedy and spine-thrilling mystery with the type of witty humour that has made Tom Hanks one of today's most popular stars. So, Corey Feldman, Carrie Fisher in a Joe Dante film. I'm going to stick this on and I will come straight back afterwards. And we will take it from there. And I will give you my thoughts. Well, I like Joe Dante. I like his films. Um, well, I like The Gremlins, obviously. I've seen The Howling a long time. I can't really remember The Howling. Um, I always liked his section of the Twilight Zone, the movie. That was the one with the magician, wasn't it? There's always sort of a lampoonish feel to his films. Um, what else of his do I remember? Inner Space. He did Inner Space as well, didn't he? That was a good one. But he, and Piranha, didn't he do the first Piranha? But the, yeah, there's always a sort of a, almost a cartoony feel to his films. And this one is absolutely no different. Some of the framing of some of the shots make it almost seem like a comic book. Some of the lighting, definitely, yeah, definitely could tell it was a Joe Dante film. Um, and back from the day when Tom Hanks was sort of on the rise, on the up, I think this must have been after films like Big Splash. Splash was one of his early films, wasn't it? The Money Pit. So he was starting to bring in the money. Before he'd gone into drama. But yeah, I do fondly remember the days of Tom Hanks in this film. And I don't know why this wasn't one that I'd watched. I definitely had seen it. As I watched it, there was bits that I could remember watching from when I was younger. But I couldn't really remember the plot or where it was going. Um... But I think the reason I hadn't sort of latched onto this one as much as other 
Tom Hanks films back at the time because I used to watch Dragnet quite a lot. Um, and Big, obviously, everyone's seen Big a number of times. But this was, it's almost a farce. There's that sort of farcical element to it where they're always spying and they're going to get caught and they're setting themselves up. And I cannot, it's not that I can't stand a farce, but I can't sit through them. I really, you know, I can watch most things. I can watch disturbing horrors. I can watch twisted strange films but put a farce on in front of me and i ah uh, oh, it just drives me nuts i could never watch 40 towers for that fact and this has almost got that sort of farcical feel to it but it is good i did i did enjoy it it was good fun i loved the relationship tom hanks has with his neighbor uh, art his neighbor art played by rick ducommon Duke, i don't know how to pronounce that i've seen him in other stuff as well can't think what, but he's quite sort of this brash, loudmouth neighbour. Keeps planting ideas into Tom Hanks's head about these neighbours, but he always wants Tom Hanks to sort of make the first moves. The relationship reminded me a bit of um, the dude and Walter from The Big Lebowski. And then Bruce Dern plays their neighbour, Mark Rumsfeld, who I wonder, watching it, whether they... Uh, had originally wanted Doc Brown in this role because he gives a sort of a Doc Brown performance as this sort of military nut with the fit young wife. And it's the three of them are trying to find out the truth about the Copex who have lived next door, who you never see, but they just sort of live in this sort of haunted house. It's got that monster house feel to it. And they only ever sort of come out at night and they drive their trash out to the bin and all these things every time you see them or see something happening it's typical joe dante cinematography it's just great it's a real great fun some great scenes tom hanks spying on them looking out in the back garden as they're in the pouring rain and the thunder and lightning digging these three holes really well framed really well set up just great great fun great tongue-in-cheek and then this house has got this basement with like a furnace down there that's super powered and it just makes this hideous noise and the whole neighbourhood is like wondering what they're, what's going on there. Carrie Fisher, sort of in between uh, the her Princess Leia roles and the sassy Carrie Fisher that we knew. So she sort of plays a lovely, homely sort of woman in lovely, pretty dresses. She's this common sense of the relationship, trying to reel Tom Hanks in. And yeah, good performance. And it's a real... It's a real shame that we've lost Carrie Fisher, really. And a real shame that we didn't get to see her in so many roles because she holds her own in this. And, um, yeah, it was good. Uh, And then there's Corey Feldman. And I think this is towards the end of Corey Feldman's sort of career as a, a young... Sort of the end of Corey Feldman's successes, really. I can't think many films he'd have done after this. I can name a load, but he's sort of an older teenager in this film. And he's like the dude on the street, you know, bringing friends around to watch basically the neighbours acting out. And it's just, it is good fun. His, His character, ordering pizzas from the pizza dude. and But he does act a bit too cool. He's got that false swagger and it's it's i don't know it's quite cringy to watch it he's not as cool as he was in say the lost boys or even gremlins or the goonies or 
stand by me. You know, he's these are standout performances for him. I think he's getting to the end of his tenure as a youthful actor. Um, going back to the Copex, though, I loved the Copex family. You see the son hands Copex first, and he is just absolute comedy gold. Just looks really gormless, sort of like you know they're playing um, foreigners. Uh, sort of Eastern Europeans, but he's got this real sort of a redneck look about him. It's just hilarious, the makeup, the teeth, this gormless face. And then Brother Theodore as Ruben Klopek. Henry Gibson, who you've seen in loads of stuff. He was the Nazi in the Blues Brothers. They make up the three family members who everyone thinks are serial killers and they're trying to find the, the crux of it. There's some great sequences in this and great scenes. It's a really good film. Uh, it kept my, like I say, it, it was a bit, it could wind me up in places, but it was great fun to look at, to watch. I did enjoy it. Uh, I don't know how it fared when it first came out, if it was a success story or not, but yeah, not one that I had watched over and over religiously for some reason. Uh, and then also in the film, Dick Miller, who always seems to appear in Joe Dante's films. He plays a garbage man and there was one of the police detectives at the end of the film when it's in the finale, it's all kicking off in the street and the police called in and one of the detectives I was looking at and I said, God, he looks like an older Ron Howard. And I wondered, is that Ron Howard's dad? And I looked up, I Googled him and he is Rance Howard. It was Ron Howard's dad. So yeah, brownie points for spotting that. Um, but yeah, the Burbs, a good film, good fun. Really did enjoy that one. And um, yeah, it makes me, if anything, I want to watch some more Joe Dante films now. So I might even go on a Joe Dante binge. Let's see. Anyway, so uh, um, join me soon when I pick another film that I own that I haven't watched yet. Cheese. Hello, it's me again. So got another title to pick out of this container more have gone in there is a massive list in there that at some point will come out and i'm also i've been considering breaking them down into like a few series you know remember i've done the peter jackson films his gory years i've got like a handful of tarantino films as we talked about pulp fiction the other day that i haven't watched so i might just go through them all together there's a handful of Spielberg films in there that I haven't watched. I might just go through them together at some point. So I might change the format up from time to time. But for now, I'm just going to pick a random title. And here we are. Got one. And it is A Night to Remember. So A Night to Remember is the old uh, 1950s version of the Titanic film. It's over here somewhere. And here it is. Okay. Night to Remember. So the cover is... Uh, oh, it's Kenneth Moore up the front with another passenger beside him in the life jacket. In the background is the Titanic listing, you know, just as it's going on its final dive into the sea. The deluxe widescreen presentation. Titanic. The greatest sea drama of all time. And uh, yeah, on the back. For many years, Roy Baker's 1958 reenactment 
of the greatest sea drama of the 20th century, sinking of the HMS Titanic on April 14th, 1912, has been considered the definitive movie version. Based on the book by Walter Lord, A Night to Remember is told through the eyes of crew member Second Officer Herbert Lightoller, Kenneth Moore, and details the events that befell the unsinkable Titanic during her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York, a voyage that led to the world's largest ship colliding with an iceberg and sliding to her final watery North Atlantic resting place in just two hours and 20 minutes. 1,502 passengers and crew were lost. Only 705 survived. Co-starring Honor Blackman, David McCallum, Alec McGowan. So... Rank films organization. I do love, love Titanic, but when you know it's when Titanic came out, I watched it four times at the cinema. I was absolutely blown away from it. I've mentioned this before, never really watched it so much on DVD. Uh, as with a lot of James Cameron's sort of later work, he does sort of Hollywoodize things you know there was the love story he turned it into a bit of a romeo and juliet and then there was like the, the gunfighting and all that this is going to be just well it's classed as a docudrama isn't it so this is going to be a bit more down to earth and just telling the story so yeah old black and white version i know they re-released this in color um, but i don't like watching the old films in color i like watching them in black and white how they was originally shot and intended so anyway Without further ado, let me now watch A Night to Remember, and I'll return in a minute to discuss my initial views on the film. Hello. So, A Night to Remember, directed by Roy Baker, who also directed, I looked at his filmography, and there's only one film I'd heard of, but I haven't seen it, and that's a film called Quartermass, which is supposed to be sort of highly regarded. So... I've got a lot of notes here. I've tried to fit them all onto just two pages of A4. So my pad's coming to the end. So I've crammed things in everywhere. So bear with me. This could be a bit all over the place. Um, starts off, we see Kenneth Moore on a train with his wife. And he's reading through the newspaper. He's looking at an advert for like a very posh soap that the Titanic proudly is using and he sort of says a remark to his wife about only the best soap for the titanic he says well for first class at least those in steerage can go dirty or something like that and there's a man in the carriage with him and he says are you a foreigner kenneth moore says no no of course not why he says well it's not very british of you to be running down a great british achievement like the titanic to be sneering at it he says and then his wife says oh oh my husband doesn't mean it like that and then he says, uh, he is second in command on on the Titanic. He'll be he'll, he'll be on there. He'll be second in command as one of the crew. And then the man's like, oh, oh, I'm very sorry, very sorry. But I thought that was a perfect scene to open the film with. It's brilliant because it, it sums up everything that was wrong with the Titanic. They Everyone had their faith in this new technology, this new boat, so much so that, you know, there wasn't enough lifeboats on there. Everyone believed that it was unsinkable. And even as the film progresses and people, you know, they're trying to communicate with other boats and then other boats are like not taking them seriously because they're going, they must be mistaken. Even though they're telling us by via Morse code, they're saying things like, you know, well, we need more information because obviously it can't be sinking. It's unsinkable. 
but it is a boat and it is sinkable. So yeah, it's got that great introduction into sort of Britain's absolute ignorance to the fact that anything could go wrong and they won't hear anything, you know, no, sir, you can't say that. Uh, it reminded me a bit of Brexit because, you know, we are suffering as a country because of Brexit, but you can't talk about that. You can't mention that now. You know, they're not mentioning it in Parliament. <laughs> you can't mention it to anyone because you're a Ramona. We can see the effects of it as the rest of the world. We're hit by all these different things, you know, the war and COVID and that. But other countries are coming out of it quicker than we are. And what's the only difference? Brexit. But there you go. I uh, <laughs> digress. You might have voted for Brexit, in which case, uh, well done. Thank you. Anyway, so very much... Like Titanic, the film sort of introduces you to certain characters in the beginning. You see the rich folk leaving their homes. I think he's called someone Sir Richard. All the work, the workhouse children line up the streets to wave him off. And his wife says, oh, what are they? Why are they waving at us? And he says, oh, they're making sure that their Christmas turkey finds them. Then you see the Irish leaving for new lives. Um, you meet certain characters like uh, Margaret Brown who is the the rich American woman. So a lot of the similar characters that you meet, but you don't need, it doesn't have, obviously, the love story. You just get on the boat, you see the boat, you hear certain statistics and things mentioned at the beginning, like how many passengers are on there. And some are mentioning about the lifeboats not meeting regulation. I think that comes later, actually, when they hit the iceberg. But... They do hit the iceberg 33 minutes into the film. So it's a real quick sort of run through the characters and run through the boat. Some really great shots of the boat, some good sets um, and some, some great model shots, some better than others. But I mean, you know, this was 1958. For the time, I can imagine it was it was spellbinding when you was watching it. Um, so it moves a lot quicker than the Titanic. There's no fluff. It's just all taken from true accounts. And I mean, as a consequence of that, there is things in Titanic that you see are taken from the books as well. So you see stories here that you will later watch in Titanic. Things like uh, people playing with the ice, kicking the ice around on the deck once they've hit that iceberg. Uh, but the aftermath of this felt a lot more frustrating in a sense that no one believed it was going to sink. And everyone, even when they hit the iceberg, there's a lot of people sort of jumping to the wrong conclusions, but not really sort of honing in to the extent of the problem. You know, people were like taking bits of ice as souvenirs. Look, oh, I've got a souvenir, you know. And then uh, one of them says, oh, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that we'll have to go back. But it's not until the ship's designer and the captain are going through the plans and the ship's designer who... It's an actor called Michael Goodlife. And so often through this, he reminds me of a young Jim Broadbent. Something about the way he looks, his jowls or something. I don't know. Every now and again, I don't think, because it does look like Jim Broadbent. But he's going through the plans with the captain. And he says, you know, I'm certain she'll sink. She's broken her five compartments. And then the captain sort of says, hmm, right, we're not going to have enough lifeboats, are we? And he mentions the board of regulation were not aware of like the importance of having as many lifeboats as possible. They just had the regulated amount, which would have been fine if they were slowly sinking. But when he says, you know, we got an hour and a half and then it's like, 
brown trousers time. I mean, this is all facts that you see in the film. They get hold of the Carpathia. She's four hours away. And they fly at flares to try and attract the attention of a smaller boat. And you keep going to these other boats. You know, this little boat in particular can see the Titanic. And they're like, oh, look, they're, they're firing rockets. I wonder what that is. Oh, it's probably trying to communicate with another boat in their fleet, you know. And they're sending a Morse code, but they're not listening to the Morse code because they don't have to listen through the night. They just shut off. And uh, it's a catalogue of errors here that completely made it an unavoidable tragedy. Whereas there was a quote I was looking as I was researching this, as I was watching the film, and there was a quote where someone said, there's a series of things that went wrong. And if just one of those was right, then the amount of lives saved would have been tremendous. But they all just happened to like go the wrong way. So again, you know, it's that arrogance, isn't it? The British arrogance. Um, So it does deal with the class issue, but not, like the Titanic, you know, not like Cameron's film does. You see a lot of the class, the, the higher class, and they're like, oh, bam, you've got to get up here and put your life belt, life jacket on. Oh, I'm not going out there. It's cold. Or I'm not wearing that ghastly thing, you know, and they're very self-conscious. And uh, even like later on when they're in the lifeboats, they're like a lot of the lifeboats are turning around and you know margaret brown the the yankee woman she's like come on we need to get back there and they're like we're full they're capsized she's like we've got to give it a try and then there's a lifeboat that's practically empty and there's men in it as well and uh one man says we need to go back and then the other lady says well i don't know we're awfully full in here quite crowded in here and i don't feel particularly well you know and it's like it's people out there need rescuing it just it's the callousness the coldness of these people but you know it's the, the confusion and you know when they're saying like women and children on board i mean how you couldn't even say that anymore can you where would you draw that line? It gets a bit more confusing these days. But back then, you know, the, all these women having to leave their husbands on the ship. And you see a lot of the husbands are sort of gallant with it. Uh, one husband in particular follows, I think he's called Robert, and he's married to Honor Blackman. And he speaks to the uh, Andrews, the ship's designer. And he says, come on, give it to me straight. How bad is it? And Andrew says, yeah, if I had a wife and children on board, I'd be getting them onto a boat straight away. And then just sort of says the urgency of it. So it's Robert, he knows the urgency, but he still tells his wife and children, oh, it's going to be all right. You know, he knows he's not getting on that boat. He's not getting off that boat, but he doesn't panic them. He's quite controlled. I mean, there's a lot of characters like that, a lot of noble acts that took place. But, you know, it's going to get sort of a bit hectic, especially when the captain sort of says, right, Find out where the arms and the ammunition are kept. They may be needed for later. And then there is, from that point on, a certain step up in the hysteria and people sort of panicking to go onto the lifeboats. Um, But, you know, as a film, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. It was good to see it so punchy and just so sort of, you know, I'm not knocking Titanic because I do love Titanic, especially what I love about Titanic the most is the way that it's minute by minute the sinking ship so as soon as the ship starts sinking in the film to the minute it sinks is the exact amount of time that it actually took the titanic to sink so you see it in real time and i love that uh, it possibly didn't need like another hour and 45 minutes beforehand to sort of build it up it doesn't need to be quite so long but you know you can't tell james cameron to make a short film but this film comes in just over two hours and it's 
it's long enough it's perfect it's real punchy and you know the production values like i said the model shots some look good some look a bit ropey but you do question how they filmed this it's there's some great sets that they're flooding with water um perhaps they don't get across just how cold it is you gotta think you know they're in icy water and except for a little bit of dust that they put on a little bit of white powder that they put on kenneth moore's brow towards the end they don't convey just how cold it is but yeah a really good watch and i did like the end where it sort of says you know since this happened there's always lifeboats for all on all ships there's unceasing radio communications there's an international ice patrol you know so a lot of things were put in place and i think you know but lessons haven't been learned because we still do put a lot of our faith in technology you know um maybe not as the boats i don't know it's like i always feel the internet has everything on the internet now we're all run by the internet our banks are all computer it'll only take something to happen to knock all that out and we'll just be back to square one and then that's you know is that going to be our slap around the face look what's happened but anyway i digress again so yeah night to remember i thought was a really good film if you haven't seen it already and you get the chance to watch it and you like this you know not like the story it's a tragic story but it's it's something that's interesting isn't it to see these sort of retelling of these tragic stories it's definitely worth having a watch but you know bear in mind that 1500 people were lost during this it's it's an incredible amount absolutely horrifying really um but yeah as a film yeah really good thoroughly enjoyed it wait up it's trev again i'm doing some more films i own that i haven't watched yet and this one is a little bit of a, a special again i'm breaking the mold i haven't picked this one from the pot and it is actually a film that I've seen before, but it was such a long time that I watched it that I can't really remember it. I do remember it, but I, I don't remember it, if you know what I mean. Now, this is a film, it's part of Tarantino's collection, but it's not one that he's directed. You might have heard my brother and I, we reviewed and discussed Pulp Fiction back along. And I mentioned in that that I really wanted to watch True Romance again. So I thought this week I would throw True Romance into the mix. Now, it's a film that I had, I wasn't overly impressed with when I was younger. There's some great things about it. It's a great script, some great characters, great performances. You know, everything on paper says that it should be great, but it's a Tony Scott film. And I'm not the biggest fan of Tony Scott films. You might have heard my review back along of Man on Fire. Well, you know, I thought then that it just all over the top unbelievable you know i'm not a big fan of top gun things like that days of thunder is i just feel that it's time for true romance to have another watch another thing i didn't like about true romance is that the music throughout it was almost lifted straight from terence malick's badlands which again is about a guy and a girl on the run so yeah i thought you know back along i sort of grew tired of this film when I was probably 18, 19. So, you know, I'm 43 now. So it's well over 20 years since I've watched it. So I think I'm allowed to put it into the category of films that I own that I haven't watched yet. So I'm sure you all know True Romance stars 
Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette on the cover. You see Christian Slater. I mean, Christian Slater, what happened to him? You know, he had promised, didn't he? He was like he was going to be the next Jack Nicholson. And then just fell off the boat a bit. You don't really see him in films. He never became that massive star that we all thought he was going to. Um, but apart from that, you've got Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt and Christopher Walken. And I forgot Brad Pitt was in it, to be honest. I always remember Gary Oldman, Val Kilmer playing Elvis. But Gary Oldman as the, sort of the drug dealer. Was he called Drexel or something like that? Um, but what made me think about watching it the other day was when I was watching Pulp Fiction and the watch scene come on. Christopher Walken is in there. And I thought, doesn't Christopher Walken play the, the villain in True Romance? And then it made me think, yeah, and Dennis Hopper is the dad. And it's like, you'd often find them in the opposite roles. Christopher Walken is very often the good guy and Dennis Hopper is like the manic bad guy. And it made me think, uh, I always remember that scene between the two of them being a really powerful scene. And that was the bit that made, I can sort of half remember that scene, talking about Sicilians or something, isn't he? And I can half remember that scene and that's what made me think, you know what, I really want to watch True Romance. So enough rambling on. Here we are with True Romance. On the back cover it says, Runaway lovers Clarence and Alabama, Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette play a dangerous game when they come to possess a suitcase of mob contraband. They head for Los Angeles where they'll sell the goods and begin a new life. But both sides of the law have other ideas. Screenwriter Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown and director Tony Scott, Top Gun, Spy Game, shoot the works in this hard-edged mix of hip wit and dazzling action with an electrifying ensemble cast to die for. So it really is a massive cast list in this, isn't it? And I mean, even then, it doesn't do it justice. There's still Chris Penn's in it, James Gandolfini, who I like to call Paul Gandolfini. I don't know why I almost did it then. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to see the film now. So I'm not going to rabble on anymore. I'm going to put it on now and I'll speak to you afterwards and have a quick discussion about my revisiting True Romance. Cheers. <laughs> Well, there we are. True Romance. Now, there's certain bits of it I remember. Sort of imagery, you know. Um, I remember the scene, as I said, with Walken and Hopper. And I remembered the scene at the end, the big shootout. But I couldn't really remember what, what else had happened. And... A fair bit happens, actually. It's quite a packed script and an action-packed thriller, if not a little far-fetched. Um, did I enjoy it? I think for the most part I did. I didn't believe a lot of it. It seemed a bit ridiculous. There were certain scenes that I was watching thinking Tarantino directing this film would have done a better job. Well, obviously. I mean, Tony Scott, I've said it before, I'll say it again, he is... Um, sort of a, Holly, a typical Hollywood director, you know, he makes these big, fantastic, action-packed movies that are just popcorn fodder and unbelievable. And I mean, I love some popcorn fodder films more than others, and some sort of Hollywood film directors have a bit more about them. I don't know. I'm not the biggest Tony Scott fan. I'm not the biggest Ridley Scott fan, to be honest, but Tony is certainly sort of a lesser entity than Ridley. Um, 
I know that he directed, like, I love Beverly Hills Cop. And then Beverly Hills Cop 2, I used to really enjoy when I was younger. But when I've watched it more recently, I was like, oh, that's, it's, sort of, it's a lot weaker. And I didn't realise until I watched it the last time that it was like, oh, it's Tony Scott. But already, it's nothing to do with anything anyway. Um, so, you know, I jotted some notes down as I went. The opening Morgan Creek theme. Now, I don't know if this comes up at the beginning of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or not. But for some reason, it always be- reminds me of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So I'd imagine that it is something to do with it. I don't know why otherwise, unless it's just to do with Morgan Freeman. And Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was the first time I saw Morgan Freeman. So maybe it's a word association. I don't know. Anyway, so it starts off almost as a typical Tarantino film. And this is bearing in mind at this point, Tarantino has only directed Reservoir Dogs but he's managed to sell the script for True Romance. The script for Natural Born Killers is banding around, and the two are sort of merged. You know, they're very similar scripts. And I'm sure that I read somewhere that a long time ago that Natural Born Killers actually originated from the original screenplay of True Romance, which was so long that it had Clarence writing a film within the film and the film was Natural Born Killers and it would flick between the two stories and then Tarantino decided to take Natural Born Killers out and make it a film of its own um but there certainly are very similar you know a lot of similarities whereas Natural Born Killers I guess Mickey and Mallory Knox are more cold-hearted and cold-blooded killers whereas in this Clarence and Alabama are more victims of, not victims, they're sort of more products of necessity. They they murder out of necessity to an extent. I mean, anyway, the film opens and it's Christian Slater giving a typical Tarantino speech all about Elvis and a certain Elvis film. And he's he's practically talking to a Marilyn Monroe lookalike in a bar as well. Um, so it's sort of a cool dialogue, cool music. It's a feel, you know, real nerdy film chat as always. And also, he's trying to get the girl to come back to watch free kung fu movies. So you've got that as well. You know, we all know Tarantino loves the uh, kung fu. And in those earlier sort of scenes set in Detroit, and you got Patricia Arquette, she her voiceover at the very beginning over some really dreary and cold shots of like a wintry Detroit. The colours, it's almost black and white with certain colours sort of highlighted. Um, But, you know, true romance. The true romance is that they they meet at the cinema. She goes and sits next to him, watches the film. Then they go back and they make love and they fall in love. He takes her back to his video store and he's, you know, a bit of a lonely nerd works in this store, can't really afford to do things. And she's a prostitute that's only been a prostitute for a couple of days. Not a prostitute, an escort. But, you know, she has a pimp, Drexel. Um, So she is actually a prostitute. But she's only been doing it for three days. So we can't hold that against her. But she is an unlikely character, really. And so does Clarence, actually, turns out to be a completely unlikely character because he's this sort of nerdy sensitive type you know um but then he becomes as the film goes on he just does things that i suppose love is blind and guides him but 
it just doesn't seem believable that he's like, no, I'm going to go to Drexel and sort of stand up to him. And then later on, the way he deals with people who are sort of way above his league, you know, when he's dealing with the film producer and he's dealing with that Elliot, who's the go-between between him and the film producer later on. <laughs> he talks as if, you know, he's cool and he's really streetwise and he's not, nothing phases him. And you think, well, if he was that confident, then you wouldn't be this little nerd in a in a video shop. You would have done more with your life. I don't know. Um, and then Alabama, you know, she's good looking. She's a prostitute. She wears some sexy sort of bimbo clothes. Uh, she's a sort of an idealised sort of version of a woman from the aspect of a, you know, sex-starved teenager almost you know it's that version of a, a character it's that type of character isn't it um but you know it's certainly the script certainly feels like a good tarantino script i think slater for the most part is like a you know i've said before he's like a young jack nicholson but in this one there's certain bits where he, he was almost like a young jason bateman you know crossed with um Corey feldman but there are you know it's a typical tarantino script and there it's layered with some great characters and it does you know it, it twists and turns throughout the story you know drexel is a really good character gary oldman gives a good performance as him the makeup is good you know he looks really creepy he's got his glass eye and his scratched up face scarred up face thinks he's a black man wearing his like you know he's got his dreads and he's sitting around in his dressing gown you know, and in the opening scenes of Drexel, you see Samuel Jackson in there. And now this is True Romance 93. So it's the following year that he's going to sort of hit the goldmine with Pulp Fiction. And in this, he just sort of comes in and basically gets shot up straight away. There's a lot of young characters, young actors in this. I mean, Brad Pitt turns up as the roommate to uh, is it Michael Rappaport, who plays Clarence's best mate dick and uh brad pitt is this stoner roommate now i was thinking this must be one of his very early roles and i googled it while i was watching he's actually done loads of films before this i know his breakout role was Thelma and louise he always sort of says um but even before you know this is two years after Thelma and louise and in that time he's also done johnny suede which i've never seen california which is sort of like a natural born killers which i have seen in which he stars alongside again juliette lewis of natural born killers uh, so he's already like been in some quite prominent roles but this one here is sort of a smaller role just plays this stoner for comic effect so anyway Clarence he wants to rescue Alabama from Drexel so he he turns up and it's ridiculous he turns up with an empty envelope and says this is how much I'll pay for her and you just think that he's in a room full of gangsters he wouldn't be that confident and cocky and then they they beat him up a bit and it's similar to the scene later on when James Gandolfini is beating up Alabama and you think they'd just shoot them. Surely they'd just shoot them. But they're always given the extra chance to just sort of drag a fight out even more and then escape. And it seems ridiculous. But when Clarence does it, you know, he, he kills everyone. He gets a girl to, come on, give me uh, Alabama's suitcase. And then he takes the suitcase full of drugs and then the story sort of unfolds from there. But there is some great performances throughout. But my favourites, 
as I've mentioned sort of in the intro, and it's not surprising that these the scene stood out, is the scene between Clarence's dad, played by Dennis Hopper, and uh, Christopher Walken, who plays the, the mafia head. Now, it's a great scene, but Walken just steals the show. You know, in that one scene that he's in, the same as in uh, Pulp Fiction, really, you know, he's in one scene, but he dominates that scene. It's got a real presence to him. He's smiling and he looks affectionately at Hopper as they're discussing things. Dennis Hopper, like I said, he playing the father and you just sort of feel for him. You feel he's sort of downtrodden and he's fallen on hard times, but he's got good morals. He's a kindly old man, the sort of character you'd usually see Martin Sheen play and not Dennis Hopper. So I think it was great casting to sort of put Hopper in there when, you know, he's usually the villain. And you really feel that when him and Christopher Walker are talking, you can see exactly where it's going. You know, you know the outcome, but at the same time, you're like, oh, no, they're actually getting on. It's going to be fine. And you're sort of hoping it's going to be fine. And you almost convince yourself it's going to be fine. And that is all to do with the performances between the two men. You just feel that there's this air of respect between them. But it's not personal, is it? It's all business. Um, Then... When Hopper starts telling the story about the ancestry of the Sicilians. And you can see sort of walking. He's enjoying the story and he's like, oh, this guy, this guy. And he's kissing him on the cheeks and things. And yeah, it's a really great scene. But, you know, and really played well by both sides. It's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, which I'm sure you all have, everyone's seen it. It is one of those scenes that just stands out throughout the whole film that was the highlight for me so i said that clarence then they go to la california and they meet up with his mate dick played by michael rapaport who has that sort of friendly boyish quality about him doesn't he i've seen him recently as like a sort of sleazy cop in um, only murders in the building i think he's quite good in that as well as that character but you know in this he's quite believable as the friend and he's a bit clueless and he's sort of innocent and he's getting dragged along into this story with clarence and alabama and he helps to set up this deal to get rid of the cocaine really quick. He, he knows someone who knows someone. And uh, it, the, the person that he knows is uh, Elliot, who's played by Bronson Pinchot, who you'll know as Serge from the Beverly Hills Cop films. And they, they meet him on a roller coaster. And now this scene, this is one of those scenes where I think, oh, I wonder how Tarantino would have directed this. If it is, this is how he'd written it in his script. But it's sort of directed like Top Gun by... Uh, Tony Scott and the sounds of the roller coaster are really fake and it almost sounds like jet engines flying and it's shot really quick and it's one of those bits that to me stand out like a film I hate watching a film where I'm reminded I'm it's a film do you know what I mean and it's like sound effects and things like that and another thing in this film that I didn't like was the gunshot sound they sound like repeated gunshots it's almost you can imagine someone playing samples on a keyboard and just pressing the same key over and over but it just does sound like someone playing gunshots on a keyboard but yeah we mentioned about brad pitt also in this we see gandolfini as i said he looks very young he's one of walken's goons he looks very thin as well but there's that fight that he has with patricia arquette or it's not a fight he just beats her up and it's quite a savage scene and then he's about to shoot her and then she tries, she just holds up a corkscrew. And then he's like, oh, go no, actually, yeah, go on. You could have a go at stabbing me. And it's just like, you just shoot her, wouldn't you? 
and then she hits him with something and then he's like oh no no more Mr. Nice Guy and then he beats her up a bit more and it it always just gives that opportunity I just lose myself in action scenes it's not you it's me as I've said before but you know the plot thickens and it gets almost farcical and you've got Chris Penn and Tom Sizemore turn up as these two bullshy cops Sizemore is sort of a tamer version of Scagnetti from Natural Born Killers um in here which he'll go on to star on in the next year or so uh tom sizemore and chris penn they they capture elliot they pull him over for speeding and he's got cocaine all over him it's all a bit farcical and a bit ridiculous but he squeals and agrees to sort of wear a bug for the drug deal and then the drug deal at the end is where it all kicks off and you've got the gangsters the cops the thugs a massive shootout scribs galore feathers flying everywhere uh it's memorable it is it is a great scene if not, the gunshots are a little too, sort of, like I say, synthesised almost. But that's also a scene where I thought this would have been masterful in the hands of Tarantino, especially when they first go in to the drug deal. And you've got the FBI listening in. You've got the film producer there, Lee, talking to Clarence. And trying they're trying to suss each other out and they're trying to... He's certainly trying to suss Clarence out and he wants to know, you know, the true story. It could have been done with so much more tension. It wasn't a lot of tension watching it. It almost feels flat. It's all, I've said it before about Tony Scott, his films do feel a bit paint by numbers. And I think this is one of his better films, but really only because of how sort of great the script is, how the characters are just so colourful. Um not believable they're colorful there's so much going on and it's a real high octane thriller and yeah i thought all right i liked it it was good to have watched true romance again after all these years uh, especially after watching pulp fiction last week with my brother for the uh, podcast it certainly made me want to revisit it as i said but yeah i it is one of those things now we never know a Tarantino version of this film would have looked like. But you could have a good idea, you know, a good sense from knowing his other films. Okay, that's about all we got time for now. So, yeah, that's uh, wraps that up. So if we now have a look back through the films that I own, I have not watched yet. So Ronin, it was a lot of fun. I did enjoy it. Um, it's not my favourite genre, there were some real cheesy bits in it, but there was some masterful direction. The car chases were absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah, I did enjoy that. The Burbs was a good comedy, good early Tom Hanks comedy, uh, and typical sort of Joe Dante film with some really sort of tongue-in-cheek horror tropes throughout good fun. A Night to Remember was a great retelling of the Titanic story. It was the version that was pre-James Cameron's and obviously I said I've seen James Cameron's a lot I had never seen this version and I did really enjoy it it just got to the nitty-gritty it didn't need any of this excess baggage that James Cameron threw into his um, and although you didn't have CGI special effects it was really well done and you it never took you out of the story it was it was just great to watch and then of course True Romance which I hadn't seen for a long time which although there's amazing performances in it and some great set pieces some great memorable sequences and really great sort of script from Tarantino uh, it still was a bit of a Hollywood Tony Scott movie but that being said I think 
It's a tight one this month between True Romance and A Night to Remember. And I think True Romance has just pipped it and will be my film of the month. You know, had a lot going for it and I did really enjoy watching it again. So, yeah, there we go. That's it for another month. I'll try and keep on top of these and get some more films that I own that I haven't watched yet for you for next month. But in the meantime... Please stay tuned for more episodes of WN Movie Talk Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash WN Movie Talk Podcast, or write to us via Gmail, WN Movie Talk Podcast at gmail.com. Be great to hear from you. Anyway, all the best, folks, and I'll see you all again soon. Chase!